Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king. The one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. We have uh, one quick announcement that's gonna lead us into prayer. We had, uh, within the past couple weeks, four new babies born at GCC. So, yeah. As I said in the past, they're just popping out like crazy. So, praise God, we have Emmy Clausen to Jake and Sarah. We have Montgomery Wheeler to Ian and Meredy. We have Emma Jones to Skylar and Elizabeth, and we have Thomas Phillip to both John and Serena. So, two boys, two girls. So, arranged marriages. <laughs> so, let's pray. And we're gonna do something a little bit different this morning. I'm gonna focus a lot of our prayer um, around the children. And we're gonna take just a moment, uh, whenever I stop praying, for you guys to pray just, uh, just amongst yourselves, uh, just, just in your head to God. Uh, for our children. So our big prayer is this. We're going to be looking at kings today and ultimately that Jesus is the one and true king is we want Christ to reign supreme in our children's lives um, from, from the youngest of, of, of ages. And so that's what we're going to pray and that's what we're going to pray for. So I'm going to pray for that. You guys can join me when I pray um, in silence. If you're here and you're not a Christian and, and you've walked in and you're like, what are people doing? They're raising their hands. They're singing. Now I'm being asked to pray for kids. I don't even have kids. If you're in any of those camps, Here's what I would encourage you to do. Just take this time even in silence and say, God, would you please reveal yourself to me? And just let, let that be your prayer this morning. So with that, let's pray. Christ, we recognize that first and foremost, you are the king. You are the one true king and any other thing that we make king in this life will fail. 
And so our prayer is for the new babies and for every family here at Gospel Community Church, for every child that's here, for every kid that's back in GCC Kids right now, Christ, our prayer is from the youngest of age that you would be king in their hearts and in their lives. We pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would awaken their hearts to the beauty and glory of the gospel, that they can't save themselves by their good efforts or morals or behavior in life, but ultimately they can only be saved by what you've done and accomplished and finished for them, Jesus. I pray that's the message that drives our homes. It's centered on our homes. It's not good morals and good behavior first and foremost, but first a good king that lived a good life, that died the death that we deserve, that took our place and gives us his good righteousness. God, we declare our need for you this morning. Speak to us, encourage us, sharpen us, strengthen us, heal us, encourage us. Wherever we've come in this morning, we ask for you to minister to us. We pray for all the kids. We pray for all the parents now to strengthen them. Remind us of the good news this morning. Father, please, through your spirit, minister to us in such a powerful way. We give this time as parents and as a church family to just to pray right now for the kids. Father, we want so badly to be able to save and transform the lives and hearts of our kids, but we're incapable. Our best parenting cannot save our kids. And so I pray that we would surrender that to you and trust you to do the work that needs to be done in our children's lives, but also the work that needs to be done here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna be in the book of Judges, jumping back into our series titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. I think it's up there on the screen. If you guys notice the spelling, it's spelt wrong. It's not because we're just complete and total idiots. It's actually on purpose. So trust me, I know I'm right is this concept, is what the Israelites were doing and what they were saying is, trust me, I know what's right. I know what's best. I know what good morals is. I know what the standard of truth is. And what we actually see is their life's just going awry because of that. And so the reason we've titled this is, is because ultimately the person that we need to trust is God. But the Israelites chose to trust themselves more and say, you know what? I think I know what's best. I shared with you guys a couple weeks ago the story of my oldest, who when I was cutting up her steak said, leave it in big pieces. I got a big mouth. I'm like, I shouldn't have done this, but I was like, okay. And then minutes later, she was choking on it, right? And then from then on, she's like, you know what, dad? I'm gonna let you decide how my steak should be cut up. And to every parent in the room, we could say time and time again, we're like, if only you would have listened to me. Like, this wouldn't have happened or you wouldn't have been in this spot. Like, like, please trust me, I know I'm right. I'm even seeing some of you guys nudging right now or looking at your kids. And so I would just say, that's what it is. That, that, that is the message that these people were like, nah, I'm gonna do things my own way. And then we see what happens in life whenever people take that approach. So that's what we're gonna look at today. Our main point today is gonna be that shaky kings produce shaky people, okay? Shaky kings produce shaky people. We're gonna be in the book of Judges. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it's in the Old Testament, okay? It's more towards the beginning. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one off the back table back there. It's our gift to you, take it, write your name in it. This is what we preach in and out of every week. This is, this is our firm foundation we stand upon, but it's also the authority that we sit under. And so if there's something I say today that seems to be inconsistent, I want you guys reading along with me and even coming up and talking to me afterwards. If there's also something that you're unsure of what's communicated, we invite that. Be up here afterwards and we'd love to help answer any questions and work through that with you guys. So with that, this is a big chapter, chapter nine. 
a really big chapter. So I'm gonna give you guys a little bit of breakdown on where we're going with it. I'm also gonna try to minimize my sniffles for you guys today, so I'm gonna annoy everyone. But I'm, I'm gonna give you a big breakdown of, of where we're going. Hopefully it helps a little bit, and then we're gonna start walking through it, okay? So shaky kings produce shaky people. The first thing that we're gonna see is that all of us have king-hungry hearts, okay? That's gonna be in verses one, one through six. Verses seven through 15 is who or what is king in your life right now? Let me say this. Right now, in everyone's life, in this room or online, something is king. Something is reigning and ruling your heart and your life. By God's nature, we were born and created worshipers. We all worship something. And what I'm saying today is whatever we make king is something that we make supreme in our lives, and we lift it up and hold it up, and, and, and it begins to rule our lives. And what this is, is we make created things king instead of the creator, Jesus Christ, okay? Next, in uh, 22, we're gonna be jumping past some of this because it's so much in, in this narrative. In 20 through, uh, 22 through 30, what we're gonna look at is the next thing to be king. The grass is always greener. Then we're gonna close with this. How do we crush and dethrone the kings in our lives? And then ultimately, how does the gospel speak to this? And what we're gonna see is that an unshakable king produces unshakable people. So that's where we're going today. Again, we're not gonna read this. It's, it's narrative, it means it's a lot. For those of you guys that love the verse by verse, we're not gonna be able to tackle this all in a verse by verse. We're gonna read narrative in a big picture so you can get the big story and the big themes of what's going on, okay? With that, I wanna tell you guys this story before we die. When I was about 16 or 17, I got into snowboarding. And part of it is that I just loved escaping and getting out to the mountains with my buddies. But for whatever reason, our parents would let us go for like a whole weekend just with our buddies snowboarding, okay? Uh, and so what we would do, because we're really immature, is that we would always wait kind of by the lift for like young single girls, and then like we would all try to like jockey for the position who was gonna get to ride up with her, okay? Here's where the immaturity piece comes in. If we didn't get the spot, riding up with a girl on the ski lift, then we were gonna jeopardize it for our buddy, okay? And so what we would do is we'd be like, I'd be like, um, hey, Brian! And Brian would scream back from a couple chair lifts up in front, he'd be like, what? And I'd be like, do you have, or uh, did you get uh, the rash ointment from your mom that she left in the lodge for you? And then he would go silent, right? Because he's like, uh, or we'd say, did you get all the hemorrhoid cream that your mom left for you? And, so, and we would do stuff like this, though so immature, just to ruin any chance that our friends had trying to pick up this girl, right? And then as we got older, we kept doing it. We lived on like the third or fourth floor in the apartment complex. And when our buddies would leave, I'd be like, hey, Dan, and he'd be like, what? I'd be like, I love you. And I'm gonna fight for this relationship and I'm not quitting. <laughs> And he would literally in the parking lot be like, please not now, Rick. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And so we would do this. So here, here's, here's what happened because of this going on for so long is we stopped responding to our names. We became hardened to hearing the voice of our friends and saying, I'm not listening, I'm not responding, okay? Here, here's my honest fear this morning is so many people have said things like this. I don't hear God speaking to me. The word of God is almost as, is as if God is yelling through all the pages of it, his redemptive love for his people. 
like God is speaking. And I believe that God wants to speak to us this morning. My heart and prayer and hope is that we wouldn't be hardened or jaded to hear what God has for us. So much so that every detail has been worked out in your life, I believe, for God to woo you in, in here this morning or online this morning to hear what he has for us. So I pray that through the power of the Spirit, we, we'd be open to see and hear and receive what God has for us. So with that, Judges 9, we're gonna jump in. Read with me, Judges 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, let's pause. Who's Abimelech? Abimelech is Gideon's son. We've met five judges so far in the book of Judges. We've met Othniel, we've met Ehud, we've met Shamgar, we've met Deborah, and we've met Gideon. Gideon started well, finished really poorly with his life. Who's Abimelech? He's his son from one of his concubines that he had in another city. And if you're not sure what that means, you can ask me later um, for the sake of kids in the room or ask your parents. But, but this is a woman he had in another town that he had a, a son with, and then he named that son, uh, son of the king, okay? So that's who uh, Abimelech is, but now he's grown up, okay? Now, Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, which is another name for Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all of these words on behalf, uh, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bareth with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and, uh, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. Okay, just a quick recap. When we're looking at judges, we're, we're not thinking of like law room adjudicators. What we're thinking of is military leaders and rulers, okay? And so now after Gideon dies, there isn't one. And so at every point up until now, God had appointed the next judge. But now we see something else happen. This guy comes in and he wants to appoint himself. If you've met people that have given themselves nicknames, they're normally awesome versus when they have a nickname from someone else. So this is a guy who's saying, you know what? I want to be king. And in fact, I'm going to appoint myself the king. And so what I'm going to do is kind of be a little bit of a shyster and, and diplomatic, and I'm going to appeal to the hearts of the people. And so that's what he does because Israel's in a vulnerable spot. They have no judge. They're, they have wandering hearts. They're wandering into sin. And what I need us to first see from this is that we all have these king-hungry hearts that, that we're actually longing for a king. And when you add shaky times like a pandemic or things that are going on in our life with our marriages, with struggles, with careers, you name it, now our hearts are really hungry for a king and something that we can latch onto and grab. This is where Israel's at. And when you add sin to that, then you get entangled and now you're like, man, anything can be my king. You see, what, what we like to say is that we are good people because what we do is we compare ourselves almost on a daily basis as we say, I'm not nearly as bad as Hitler, but I'm not nearly as good as Mother Teresa. 
Only when the Bible talks about us, it never says that we're good. It says there's no one good except God. And in fact, it says that our hearts are wicked and deceitful because the Bible's not comparing us to a human standard. It's comparing us to God's standard of ultimate goodness and perfection and holiness. Therefore, according to that, no one is good, okay? They're so hungry for a king and for someone to rule them, someone to lead them, someone to latch onto. Their hearts are so hungry for that that they would take anyone. A monkey could have come in and said, I will lead you guys, and, and they probably would have been excited about it. I, I, I tell my girls this, especially my oldest, almost like weekly, on a weekly basis before they lead to school, I quote the famous theologians, TLC. I say, remember this, you don't want no scrub. <laughs> scrub is the guy that can't get no love from you. Joey's got to where she quotes it, and my wife thinks I'm ridiculous. The reason I'm saying this is because you don't want a scrub in your life. This king, Abimelech, is the, uh, I mean, this is what he is. He is a total and complete scrub. What he does, and we see it through his actions, is he goes to his mom, and he's like, hey, tell all the people this. Tell them, would you rather have all 70 of, of Gideon's sons rule over them or, or just me? And, and I'm also, like, their half-sibling. And so she does that. What does he do? He goes and hires hitman and then has them all killed on one stone. And then he takes money from them out of their idol, out of what they were worshiping, and is like, yeah, I'll take this. This is the kind of king that they settled for because they were so king hungry. Every four years, we watch a nation full of people that are king hungry, thinking that the next president is gonna be the one that's gonna satisfy something for us and, and give us and, and do something inside of us that we really need done because our hearts are king hungry. We're looking for that. And here's what I would say. Your heart will not be satisfied until it is ultimately satisfied in Jesus, the one true and only king. Your heart is never gonna be satisfied until it's ultimately satisfied in King Jesus. Let's keep cruising on. Verse seven, we're gonna look at this. Who or what is our king? What are we making king, okay? So we got Abimelech. He's appointed, verse seven. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So it's his, it's his half-brother's coronation day and now he goes up and stands on top of a mountain and he's screaming to all the people as they're getting ready to appoint and anoint their king. And he's like, listen to me, that God may listen to you. Verse eight, the trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. This is a parable. And here's what he's saying. And he unpacks it, which we're not gonna read in 16 and 21, but you can read it later. What he's saying is this. There are many kings you could have appointed there are many in, in, in Israel that would have been good kings. And he uses trees because they would be familiar with this. 
the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine. But he's like, you guys chose none of these. You chose bramble. And here's the interesting thing about bramble. Bramble provides no shade, no protection, and it burns up easily, and it pokes you. And they're like, this is what you chose. And then he goes on to say through 16 and 21, he's like, now, if you chose wisely, and if you're honoring Gideon, then, then may you be blessed. But if not, may this choice bring a curse to you. What's interesting, uh, what's interesting is this is prophetic because Bramble burns up and they are all burnt up. Literally, Abimelech, at the end of the story, we'll see he burns them to death. And so he's saying, this thing that you're making king, this person you're making king, it's gonna be bad. It's gonna go real bad for you because this guy shouldn't, this scrub should not be king. But we are people that want kings and we're people that, that, that appoint kings in our lives. How do we identify something that we've made supreme, that we've made king in our life? And we would call these, I did a sermon on this a while back, like baby kings or small kings. Here's how we can identify these things that Jotham's talking about. The things you don't want to find refuge in, the things you don't want to look for safety, the things you don't want to go to for protection, and the thing that if you put all of your hope and weight and treasure into it can burn you in the end. So here's some questions to wrestle through. What gives you meaning in life? And what gives you purpose? I've talked to countless men who are like, I don't know my purpose. And so we go on this purpose hunt for what gives us purpose. A lot of times, if you can answer that question, what gives you meaning or what gives you purpose is likely the thing that you're elevating to king in your life. Here, here's another question. What disrupts your life and makes you angry? What brings out the biggest emotions in your life? What can make you angry? What can make you frustrated? What can rob you of joy, of happiness, and make you lash out? That is the thing you're probably elevating as king in your life and making supreme. Let me give you an example of a few of these things. You have to remember, not everything that we make king is a bad thing. In fact, God created good things that we make God things, and that's when they become bad. So not all of these are bad things. They're bad when we make them king and supreme in our hearts and lives. Routines. They're not bad, but when our routines fail, does it cause us to lash out? I had a rough morning this morning because I got to the office. I didn't have my key on my keychain. I was mad. My morning routine was derailed, and then I was derailed. Why? Because I have a routine, and if my routine's messed up, I'm going to lash out. Plans. If our plans don't go the way that we think they should go and that life should go, do we derail? And if so, is it because we've made our plans king in life? What about relationships? I have meaning as long as my spouse and kids need me or are happy with me. Are you making your spouse and your kids and their need of you king? If so, you can crush people by doing this. What about an image? I have meaning by the way I look or how others perceive me. My image gives me that. Security. I have security or comfort when I have stability in my life. What provides the stability is finances, a certain amount of savings, and having no debt. What about the next season of life? I hear this a lot for, from, from, from parents. If we can just get through diapers, if we can just get through this season of life, if we can get on to the next season of life, what you've done is transfer your hope to the next season of life. That's a time and space that God created, not the creator. You know the problem with all these things? Marriages and all, 
is that if they're raised to king in your life, they can start to crush you and the people around you. And here's why. Your image will fail. Beauty fails. Our physique fails. That happens in time. Your bank account can fail. You could get sick. Things can go wrong. That can be depleted. The stock market can crash. Your relationships can fail. People can abandon you. People can run out on you. Your kids might not like you, which you'll notice when they become teenagers. It's pretty bound to happen. The next season of life that you're hoping for to be better can actually be worse than the season of life that you're in right now. Man, I hate to say that, but that's true. And so when we make all these things king that could change, that could fall away, that are fickle and crash and fall apart, then we fall apart with them and so do the people around them that have felt the, uh, that have felt the way to live up to that. And I would say this, whatever you think if you think having a perfect spouse, like a spouse that's leading you, loving you, serving you, knowing you emotionally, doing all this, or uh, um, the perfect sex life, whatever it is, if you think having a spouse, if you think having kids, if you think all these things are gonna satisfy you, I promise you this, that none of that will satisfy you, even if you had the perfect one, because it's still not the king and you were created to find your ultimate satisfaction in the one true king, Jesus Christ. And so it's still gonna fail you in counseling sessions. It almost comes down to this, which is so simple for people, but what happens is they're normally looking out, saying this person or this thing is failing me, instead of looking in and seeing what you've made king in your life and seeing that the only thing that's happened is that God by his grace has allowed you to see that something in the world that's not him can't satisfy you and can't be your king. But yet we continue the cycle of making things king and putting them in here rising them to the throne of our hearts and lives and then them going, oh, it's not doing it. So we get angry. So when Jotham says this, he's like, just know you're putting your stock and your weight in bramble. It's gonna burn up. And, and my challenge and the question to us this morning is are we putting our weight and stock in something and in a king that is just going to fail us? That is never gonna have the ability to satisfy us. Now, again, I stated what happens in 16 through 21 is just that. He explains what he means by this. And then we get into verse 22. This is what we call the next thing to be our king, or this is we're always looking for the grass to be greener on the other side, okay? Read with me, 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them. And on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Abed, who moved into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they put out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Abed said, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But why would we serve him? but that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So we're seeing it. 
the people of Shechem are turning on their king, okay? They're, because another guy, a new sheriff moves into town. He's got his posse with him. And this guy, nothing's new under the sun. He gets a few drinks in him, some liquid encouragement, and he starts popping off. And so he's like, all right, who's this Abimelech guy? My dad used to call this alligator mouth syndrome. I won't say it the way my dad said it, but he would say these are the type of guys that have an alligator mouth and a jaybird butt, okay? Meaning they got a big mouth, especially when you add some drinks into it. So this guy, man, he's, he's selling himself. He, he's, talking, he's talking the big talk. Man, if only you guys would appoint me a king, I would overthrow this guy because this guy sucks, okay? And you know what? Their hearts are swayed. Why? Because when the true king is not king of your life, then you're just gonna grab the next best thing. You're constantly gonna be thinking, man, if, if I would have had this or if I had that or if I married this person or did this or this career or that, it's constantly, the grass is always greener. That's them. That's us, if we can be honest. That is us. And so, they have a party and start saying all that. And the people eat it up, just like we do. Let's bring it close to home, because this is what the text is actually doing. They're no longer at war with the Canaanites. This is happening with the Israelites. So let's bring it home to the church. This is no longer happening out there. This is a division happening inside of the church. So this is how we should read it, since he's speaking to a family and to a people of the Israelites, and they're, they're doing this with this division of one another. Do you know why? Because what we've done in the church is we idolize people. I make a horrible, crappy king. I do. And honestly, so do you guys for me. And what I mean by that is if you think that having my acceptance, my approval, there's something in me that can satisfy you, you're setting yourself up for complete failure. And if I think that having your approval and your acceptance and your favor is gonna be good, I'm not gonna make good decisions and I'm gonna be let down. That's why it says make Jesus the hero because he's the only one that we should be looking to to be king. The problem is, is we constantly think that someone else and another leader is going to satisfy what we need. But we can look at church history and see George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards both own slaves. John Wesley had a horrific marriage that failed with emotional and physical abuse. Martin Luther wrote awful things about the Jewish people. Ulrich Zwingli, who we've adopted his, uh, I, I'm sorry, Ulrich Zwingli literally killed people through baptism because he did not believe that you should be fully baptized as an adult, fully immersed in the water. That's our view, just so you guys know. We can fast forward. And what do you have from our century? You have Artaxerdia, you have Bill Heibel, you have Carl Lance. You have all these guys unfaithful. You have Jen Hatmaker who abandons orthodoxy and, and so does Joshua Harris. And then what happens to people? It's almost like their worlds fall apart. Why? Because at some point they elevated some of these Christian figures to be more than they are, broken, train wrecks of a mess that need the grace of God. My biggest struggle with Christianity, which I still struggle with today, is that I felt like Christians were full of baloney. It's like we postured and hid ourselves behind an image that was false and not real. But when you read the Bible, it doesn't pull punches to tar and feather everyone in there pretty much besides Jesus. And yet what we do is, listen, we idolize people, then we humanize them, and then we demonize them. 
We, we, we make it our personal effort to say, you should be king, and then we realize you're not, you're just a broken human, and now I'm gonna do everything I can to let everyone know you suck and you've failed me. When really we've exalted people to a place in our lives they shouldn't be. It's kind of the beauty of podcasting, but also the messiness of it as well as we get to hear all these people and then we start to elevate them, forgetting this. I'm, I'm gonna pick on Matthew Russell. He loves Matt Chandler. You're not gonna have a conversation with Matthew without hearing the name Matt Chandler, okay? One time in a meeting, uh, Zach Schaefer, who was leading worship, his brother um, helps lead worship for Matt Chandler's church. And, and I think Zach was saying he got to meet him and, and Matthew was like, what was it like? He's like, he's a human. And I think the more you spend time with people, the more you should get to see and know and realize, especially the people that stand in the pulpit, that we are absolutely messes, disasters, sinful, broken, jacked up human beings. And the only thing that we should be able to recognize more is how much grace we need. But for Israel and for all of us, we start appointing people to places in our lives that they never ever should be placed. And then we get angry whenever they fail us. Look, I'm not shirking the responsibility that there is to be a pastor. I'm just saying that ultimately it's a pastor's job not to try to take on this kingly idolatrous form, but it's supposed to be to point you to the king. It's all of our jobs to point people to the ultimate king, to the chief shepherd and keep pointing people to him. What happens next is through these next verses all the way up until 49 is exactly what you would expect to happen. Abimelech gets word and he's like, oh, okay. You guys want another sheriff? And he, so he's like, I'm gonna round up my posse. And that's what he does. And he doesn't just stop with killing those people. He actually takes out all the farmers in the fields and he pours salt over them which salt kills fields because it absorbs all the moisture. And then he's like, that's not good enough. I'm gonna kill all the people that live in Shechem. So all the men and women flee and get into a tower. He brings in bramble and he lights the whole thing on fire and they burn to death. Because in the end, this guy they made king that they idolized, that they worship, burnt them in the end. They elevated someone there that shouldn't have been there. And then we pick up in verse 50. How do we crush or dethrone the things that we've made king in our life? Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. These people aren't even involved. This just shows this guy's on a power-hungry rampage, 51. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, uh, to the young man his arm bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed me. That's hilarious because it's literally recorded here and in 2 Samuel. So, and his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. What, what's happening here? There are things in our life that we need to crush. Just like this woman threw the stone and crushed him, there are things that need to be crushed kings that need to be crushed, and there are kings that just need to be dethroned, okay? 
because we can make family king. We can make ministry king. We can make very good things king. Those things need to be dethroned, not crushed, not killed, okay? So how do, how do we do this? How do we know how to do this? How do we start crushing things? What, 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 what should we crush? First, we need to know and understand this, is that God could crush every single one of us because we deserve to be crushed because of this. We make everything else king in our lives besides King Jesus. We, we, we break the first commandment, I mean, time and time again every day, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And, and Jesus' summation of the law is, love the, God, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. We would have to be honest and say, we break that day in and day out, all throughout the day. I make so many other things king in my life. So really, God being just could crush us all for our rebellion against him. Instead, we have a different king in Jesus who didn't come to put everyone under his rule and thumb while he was here on this earth. And instead he came to serve and wash feet and heal people, but he actually came to be crushed. So we wouldn't have to be by God. He came to absorb the wrath that we deserve from a holy and just and good God. Look, Jesus didn't owe it to us to leave his throne. God owes us nothing, but he chose to leave his throne because he knew that we would constantly in life find everything else to try to make it king and be dissatisfied. He came to give us a relationship with the one true king. There's only two things that can separate you from God. It's your sin and it's death. Sin he took care of on the cross by atoning for it, by paying for it. So that's gone. There's no guilt for those in Christ Jesus. Second is death, which he triumphed over when he walked out of the tomb. And so he made that victory over death belong to those who put their trust and faith in him. So that's also taken care of. So first thing, if we're gonna dethrone or crush kings that we actually need is we need first Jesus to be king of our hearts and lives, which comes by grace through faith, that's it. And what we need is we need an identity because we're all people searching for an identity. Mom, dad, husband, wife, employee, employer. Christ comes to give us an unshakable identity. Listen, please, hear, hear me. Every day I, I, I tell my kids, I'm like, there's three things I want you to know. Daddy loves you, Jesus loves you more, and you're the most beautiful princess in all the land. Then they're like, what about mommy? And then it gets confusing. So <laughs> uh, if you have put your trust and faith in Jesus, you have an unshakable identity. You are a prince or princess of the king. That is literally your identity. And you can't shake that off. You can't shake it. You can't get rid of it. That is who you are. You are a prince or princess of the king, adored by the king, delighted by the king. And as it says in, in John 59, he loves us just as much as he loves the father. You can't shake his love, but he also gives his righteousness to you. And you can't shake his righteousness and his purity that he's placed on us. You can't shake it off. You can't shake your way out of God's love. You can't do anything to get rid of it. It is unshakable because he's unshakable and he's declared it true over your life. More secure than the foundations of earth, more secure than Everest are his words he's declared over you. Prince, princess, loved, adored, beautiful, righteous, and holy, unshakable. Next, what we need to see and realize is that an unshakable king produces unshakable people because when you have a foundation in a king that cannot be shaken and who you are in him cannot be shaken, then what it does is it make people firm and unshakable. Because if the truest and best thing about you can't be removed and can't be shaken, it can make us more unshakable in hard and difficult seasons in life. 
But with that, we also need to know that in this process of Christianity, that we are going to constantly make other things our king, which in that process, he's given us the spirit, which is the final thing. We can't ultimately crush and dethrone kings. The spirit of God has been placed inside of us to help us, to show us what our kings are, to transform us, to help dethrone things, to help crush things, and, and, and to help us live into our God-given identities as princes and princesses. Shaky kings produce shaky people, but an unshakable king produces unshakable people. In the process of, 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 of or here, here's what I would say, here's, here's the gospel. You don't gain God's favor by crushing the kings in your life. You gain all of God's favor because the King Jesus was crushed for you in your place. You can't shake God's love, acceptance, and approval of you because Christ was crushed. Our king didn't come to set up a throne on this earth when he came. He came to serve and sacrifice and give his life to bring us into a kingdom that will never shatter, that will never fall apart, that'll never vanish. What are three things that we can do? The first is worship. Tim Keller says this, every look that you take at your sin or the things in your life, take, take 10 looks at the Savior. The thing that we look at the most, we start to look like the most, okay? So we have a worship problem. If we've worshiped kings into a place in our life, we can't just cut them off, crush them, and dethrone them. We actually have to change our worship and start going, wow, look at Jesus. Look at him as the king. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's provided. Look at what he's given. And then we start to grow. Worship is our problem. We're all worshipers. The way we dethrone and crush is worship. Next, embrace the suck. We love our self-images. So do I. And when God starts to crush our self-image of the false reality that we've built, it's going to be painful. But what he's doing is replacing it by actually who we are in Christ. Next, we need community. You are blind to your kings. I'm blind to my kings. We need people in life to say, hey, I think you're making this king, man. We need our sisters in Christ to say, I think you're making this king. Let me walk with you. Let me pray with you. Let me remind you of who your true king is. You need Christianity. Like, we can't do this thing on our own. We are blind. We need to be in close proximity and close relationships with other people. With that, we need to embrace our spiritual disciplines, the word of God, prayer, all these gifts he's given us, meeting together, gathering together, and last, start living for the king's kingdom instead of our own kingdom. The reason why people can focus on everything that's wrong in their lives and everything they're not getting and everything that we, we deserve is because we're actually just focused on our self-centered wants and desires and we're not actually serving the king. And we're not serving other people. We're not encouraging other people. We're not looking out past us. I love this movie. I, I, I might be outdated for you guys. Black Sheep with Chris Farley. And in this movie, Chris Farley is, is uh, playing against David Spade, whose name is Steve. And Chris Farley is so frustrated because they're playing checkers. And Chris Farley goes, well, <laughs> it's easy to win, Steve. When you never move your back row, ever. And, I, and like, I get his like frustration because there's a part of me that goes, it's easy to be constantly frustrated with everyone else and everything you're not getting when you never serve anyone else and your life is consumed by you. Christians, God has called us to serve the king and serve his kingdom as a thing that's actually good for our hearts. Are we doing that? So just to reiterate, worship is how we crush and dethrone, embracing the sock, living in community and with our disciplines, and then living for the king's kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're the true king. Every time someone or something fails us in our life, let us not be rattled to the core by that. Instead, let us see it as your grace to show us 
they should never have been in the place of king in our lives. Let that not move us towards bitterness, but love and grace and humility towards others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.